picture this. It's a cold winter's night. Snow is gently falling. Darkness surrounds you. And you struggle to see. Everything is obscure. Every direction. Meaningless. But suddenly, light. The night Jesus was born, they tell us that a light appeared in the sky. A light that not even the greatest of astronomers could identify. A light so bright that even darkness had to flee. A light so powerful that even the worst of what we had done was not only exposed, it was cleansed forgiven and forgotten. You see, this is why Jesus came to earth to give us that light so that we would have the same joy and the same love and the same light everywhere we go. And the best news is, this is a light meant for all. It is freely offered. You see, Christmas is more than the warmth of friends and family, more than nostalgia, the gifts, and memories. It is about the greatest gift ever given because a world in darkness has not only seen a great light, no, we have seen the greatest light, and his name is Jesus. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we dive into our passage this morning? Uh, kids are dismissed for Kids Church. You can follow uh, Rita and Amy. Um, bye, bye. bye, Sadie girl. Have fun, okay? I'm going to miss you. Hey, did you leave me those Cheez-Its? Jesus, this morning, God, as we, as we reflect on your goodness, as we reflect on the incredible nature of your light, as we reflect on how that light transforms darkness, and because of your light, Father, there's joy and peace and hope and love and all of these things that are available in you. And so, Lord, this morning, I am asking that you would move, Holy Spirit. May the words that come out of my mouth, Jesus, may they be of you. And if there's something I prepared, Jesus, that is not of you, God, I pray that you would shut my mouth. But may your spirit flow and move and transform. Because, God, I'm just a human up here preaching your word, and it's your spirit that brings power to it all. So, Lord, we humbly submit to you this morning. May our ears be attentive. May our hearts be open to receiving what you have for us this morning. Lord, may this be transforming for our lives. Not just knowledge, not just, hey, we read something out of a book, but, Lord, may it be power to our lives that your word promises to those that truly abide by it and apply it to their lives. 
So this morning, God, we, we surrender. We're asking for you to move, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the things that I've had the fortunate and unfortunate thing of doing over our uh, short 10 years of marriage, I say short because a lot of you have been married, by God's grace, a lot longer. And I'm so thankful that I have mentors and I have people in my lives who see that. But in our short years of 10 years, almost 10 years of marriage, not even 10 years yet, we've bought in three houses. Uh, we, we, and when, when you buy a house, obviously you're, you're purchasing from someone else and you're receiving that house as your own. And, and when we think about that part of it, last week we talked about Christ as our Savior. And we talked about how... Um, As our redeemer, he's redeemed us back from the enemy through his blood. He's purchased us back and received us to himself. But when you purchase a house, um, in order for it to become a home, what must you do? So you just purchase an $180,000 home or plus or however you bought your house, right? And in order for it to be your own, in order for you to make it feel as if it's your own, what must you do? Move in. But what requires you, what, what happens when you move in? What do you bring with you? Your, all your stuff, right? Your couches, your, your stuff. And when you move in, not only are you moving in, but if you're like me, you move into a house and you're like, okay, what do I need to fix? What needs to be replaced? What piping needs to go? What shutoff valves need to re- be replaced with shark bites? What all these things happen in order for it to really be your home. Um, and, and when we think about it, Christ has, has purchased us from the enemy. He's freed us from the bondage of sin in our lives. But here's the thing. There's so much work to be done. While Christ has purchased you, you don't, you don't become holy and set apart and perfect overnight, do you? When you accept Jesus as your Savior You don't wake up the next day being the perfect Christians, not sinning, not doing anything. There is a process for it to become Christ's home in you. There's a lot that needs to happen. And so this morning, I want to talk about that next phase of life. See, we've we've talked about the Savior. And then next, in the fourfold gospel of the Alliance cause, we believe that not only did Jesus save us, but he sanctifies us. Those that call him his... Lord and Savior, he has a process in our lives where he is changing our hearts and changing our our motives and our desires, right? Deep down within us, in our heart and in our souls, there's a lot of cleansing, a lot of things that need to happen. And, And in your span of life and in that transition to prepare you for eternity, And so this morning, we are going to talk about a a, a big churchy word that we call sanctification. And and really what it means is set apart. See, here's the thing we need to understand is that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, the Bible says that he removes all guilt from us, so he justifies us. So we're no longer held guilty by that sin. And not only that, the Bible says there's another thing. When we talk about sanctification, there is a positional and there's progressive. Positional is that when Christ saves you, he is taking you out of the world and setting you apart for him and his glory in this world. He is setting you apart. Another word that we may call this is consecration that we see in the Old Testament. It's this idea of of just setting apart, 
removing you from the, the grasp of the enemy and setting you apart for his glory. But the unfortunate thing is that even though he sets you apart, there is still a battle going on within you. And this morning, we are going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it in, in a different perspective. I'm going to use a story that Chuck and Kay read to talk about uh, sanctification and what that looks like in our calling and what is required of us as we draw closer to Jesus. And so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. And John, there's the, the slides for it. Um, and so Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the first 12 verses. And I want to continue in this passage because uh, over these last couple months, right, we've talked about the first part of Matthew chapter 1 when we talked about the lineage and we talked about Joseph. And last week we finished it up talking about how Jesus, right, God called Joseph to accept Jesus because he was to save his people from their sins. And so I want to continue on in this passage as we uh, read this as we process this, and, and I'm going to talk about the passage, and then I'm going to apply it to our lives and what it looks like for Christ to sanctify us. And so now, Je after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and I've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means <clears throat> least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and as certain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> and so as we look at this passage, uh, what are the characters that are, that, are, that are coming up? Who do you see in this passage? Who are we, as we read, who are the characters of this story? The what? All right, so we have the wise men. King Herod, well, Jesus, chief priests and scribes, right? and Mary, Mary, right? We have no idea where Joseph is. Um, I, I'm not going to speculate as to what possibly happened to him or anything, but um, <clears throat> we have all of these characters, and so I want to talk about the significance of these characters, and in this story... And then we are going to um, talk about how some of these things point to our lives and the progress of, of sanctification and what that looks like. And so the story starts off with talking about 
Um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of King Herod, so we know that this was during Herod's reign, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so let's talk about the, main, the nativity scene for, for a sec. Majority of us, when we think about nativity or think about the wise men, how many do we typically think are there? Three. Now, this passage doesn't talk about that at all. We actually have no idea. When we talk about the wise men, here's a couple of things that we need to clear up. While we can look at history and speculate how many wise men possibly there were, we have no idea. Some say three, some say 10, 20, 30. We actually have no idea how many men from the east came to Bethlehem to, to see King Jesus being born. Uh, we, we have no idea. Scripture also, when we look at this, um, doesn't mention their names. So we have no idea who these men actually are. Now, when we look at history, there's actually some traditions who would say that the three men's names are, are Gaspar or Casper, Melchior and Balthazar. Some would even say that these three men, one was Ethiopian, one was Indian, and the other one was Greek. We have no idea. These are traditions, these are history, these are things that, that we can speculate as we, as we add to the story and as we study this. But here are some of the things we do know about these men. Where are, from, where are they from? The east. We know for a fact that they're from the east. Potentially Persia, Babylon, uh, we, we, we fully don't know where, but we know that they're from the east of where they were going. We also know from, from this story and from obviously the significance is that these men were, were prominence. They were high-ranking officials with power and influence because of the gifts that they gave were very highly expensive gifts. So we could speculate that these men were, were high-ranking. Uh, some would say that these men were kings. We have no idea. But we know that they were high-ranking officials. We know that they, um, they, they had wealth. Um, and, and, and we also know of their understanding that they, they were men who studied the stars. When we look at books like Daniel or um, places in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2, 2 would say this about wise men. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the ancient tears, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summed to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And so the Old Testament described wise men as Daniel. And so we know these men had specialties. Some were probably, you know, studies of the stars. Some were probably, when we think about the word magi, we maybe think of some kind of magician in a sense. So these were men who, who uh, were incredibly possibly um, studious and talented. They were of wealth. Um, we, we don't fully know. What we would know is that from the East, most would speculate that these men probably traveled about eight to 900 miles to get to uh, see this King Jesus. And so here are these wise men who saw a star when it rose and have come to worship Jesus um, and, and worship this new king that was born, King of the Jews. And so here is these men. Also in the story, we have no idea when the star actually first arose. We just know that they saw a star in the sky at some point and they've pursued it. And so verse 3, we, we go from the wise men and we change over to the next character. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So here is a king 
And he was, when he heard the news that a, a, a baby was born king of the Jews, he was troubled. Now, what, what was he troubled about? This word troubled actually literally means that he was in turmoil. So here's a king, King Herod. Here's just a few facts as I've done my research. Um, he was given control of Judea by the Romans in approximately 40 B.C., and he was considered the king of the Jews. He was a vicious, bloodthirsty tyrant. Whenever he suspected anyone of plotting to take over his rule, he would have them killed. He even went so far as to murder wives and sons at various times when he didn't trust them. So here is a man that at any point he can totally explode and do something that, that would harm other people. So here's this king who was very uh, territorial. He, he wanted control of the throne. He wanted control. And, and here comes these wise men, these high-ranking officials who are like, hey, we saw the star in the sky and have come to worship the, this baby-born king of the Jews. He was disturbed. He had all these emotions and all these things going on inside of him. And he was very upset with this. He was jealous, furious. And he was threatened by the reality that his throne was being challenged by this baby. Why? Because many people thought that King Jesus was to come as a ru earthly, ruly king. So here's a man who thought that his earthly royal throne was going to be challenged. And so not only was he disturbed, but it says all of Jerusalem was with him. Because why? Because they were all like, uh-oh, what is the king going to do? They were troubled and worried about what this king potentially can do, finding out that there is this new king that was born. What harm would he bring to them? What chaos would he bring to the city? And so he inquired as he was doing this. So he, he, he assembled all of his chief priests. So we have the wise men, we have, we have King Herod, and, and we have uh, this. The next group is, is the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So this is what, verse 5, he assembled and inquired of them, saying, hey, where the Christ was to be born, right? All that the, the, the wise men said is that they were led here by a star, but they have no idea fully where this Christ was to be born. Reality, they were still about 6 to 10 miles or so away from where Christ was born, but what was their first place to go? Let's go to the king and figure this out. And so the king assembled all of his scribes and his chief priests, and he said, hey, where is this Christ to be born? And so being chief priests and scribes, they would understand the Old Testament, right? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so these chief scribes, these chief people, would understand... Oh, the Old Testament says this about this king. And so they would know from, from their understanding of, of being scribes and their understanding of being chief priests that they would understand a little bit of the Old Testament. But here are some things we need to understand about these chief priests and scribes. These were religious people who were actually indifferent to Jesus. If you notice in this passage, they really didn't respond outside of telling King Herod, hey, this is where King Jesus is to be born. And so chief priests were representing Jewish worship. Despite God's purpose in appointing priests, these religious leaders had essentially become a group of corrupt 
religiously oriented politicians at the time of Jesus' birth. So they were literally just people that the king had in his side and in his grasp. They represented the Jewish worship, but in reality, they didn't really truly honor or even represent the true worship of God. Scribes were, were, were like lawyers. They were people who represented Jewish law. The scribes were basically lawyers who knew, taught, and interpreted the Jewish law, both Old Testament and the traditions that had developed around this law, which is frightening given the way we see them opposed to Jesus throughout his ministry. So here is chief priests and scribes who later on in, in Matthew or even anything, right, the next time we really see this idea of king of the Jews is when? When Jesus was to be crucified. So here are these chief priests and these scribes who, who studied, who represented God and the, and the people in worship and, and represented the Jewish law and all these things. But here's the thing about them. This just proves that mere knowledge of Scripture doesn't actually cut it. You can know the Scripture but still miss the point. These chief priests, these scribes, they, they knew about the Jewish law, but they did nothing about it. There was no response from them. There was no excitement. They just told the king, hey, by the way, the Old Testament says this about this, so potentially Bethlehem. These men who knew the birth of the Messiah did absolutely nothing. They were indifferent to Jesus, and that apathy led to their future crucifixion of Christ. But here's the thing we need to know. It is a dangerous thing to know Scripture and never obey it. It's true, a mark of a true disciple is one who what? Hears the word of God and obeys it. And so here is men who knew Scripture. They understood it. I mean, they were scribes. They were lawyers. They knew the law inside and out, but yet they did nothing about it. And so they get this. This prophecy that they told him was actually from Micah 5.2, which says this, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Remember where we read that? We read that in the book of Ruth. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. So here's one who is going to rule. His origins is from eternity. He is going to be born in Bethlehem. But here's the difference in these passages as we look at. Micah 5.2 says that, that he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And it says this, that you were small among the clans of Judah. But look what Matthew 2.6. You got to remember that the, the goal of Matthew running this was to what? It was to the Jewish people letting them know that the Messiah, their king, has come. That was his whole purpose, to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Matthew 2.6 kind of changes a little bit, and he says this, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. And so while Micah says, hey, you are small among the clans of Judah, Matthew changes this saying, because Christ has come, you are not by no means least among this clan. There's incredible power. Because of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. He would rule over Israel. He will shepherd Israel. Matthew mentions Judah. Why? Because Jesus is the line of Judah. We know that the king of David actually has to come from the tribe of Judah. And that is why we, we, last week we told you that, that Joseph was included in the lineage because he is from that tribe. So only a member can actually qualify for the throne of David. 
And here we have Jesus fulfilling that prophecy, being born in Bethlehem of Judah. And so Matthew changes these. And so we have these wise men. Here's some things we got to understand about the wise men. They would have also studied scripture. And they would have known a couple of the prophecies that, that, that we saw. They would have known found in, in Numbers chapter 24 when, when Balak the king, um, he, he actually told Balaam to, to, to do a curse over Israel. But God actually revealed himself to Balaam and said, hey, no, I want you to bless Israel. And, and in that passage talks about how a star and a scepter would rise up. Then we read earlier at the beginning of our passage from Isaiah 61 through 6, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And so the wise men would have possibly studied scripture as well, and they would have, would have randomly seen this star in the sky that we have no idea was an actual natural star in the sky, or was it something when we talk about the providence of God, that God provide the star to fulfill prophecy? Because it says that it rose, but it says no one else realized it. So were they the only ones who, when they saw the star, began to pursue it? Knowing from Scripture that a new king of the Jews, a baby will be born in Bethlehem, and this light, the star, will shine. And so they followed the star as, as people who study the sky, and it led them to here. But then the star stopped. And so Herod, listening to his chief priests and his scribes who understand scripture but don't live it out, verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so he's coming saying, hey, when did the star actually appear? When did you see the star appear? And so they sent, so they, they told him, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But if we keep going in this passage, we know that Herod was just trying to get answers so he can go do his thing. And we see later on that his thing was that he wanted to kill any child that was two years and younger based on the timeline that the wise men told them when the star appeared. And so after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. And so it came to rest over the place where the child was. Listen, I've never ever saw a star continue to move and stop over a particular space before. But here's these wise men who, again, they leave and the star appears. And the star actually leads them to the specific house where Jesus was. The star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their gifts, and they offered him gifts of, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return. So here's the wise men. They follow the star yet again. And they go to this place where the prophecy says was going to happen. And so they follow the star and rest over it. And so the wise men, they walk into this house and they see this child with Mary. We don't know how old he was. 
what the reality is is that we know that the nativity scene, in a sense, is wrong because the wise men didn't come the night that Jesus was born. Matter of fact, the wise men would have possibly came a year to two years later. We don't fully know, but we know what, what, that King Herod, he wanted to kill children who were what? Boys who were two years and younger. Why? Because of the time frame. And so the star, they followed it, it stopped at some point, and then it appeared to them again and went ahead of them over to the specific house that Jesus was in. Now, I don't know about you, but I firmly believe this star was very providential. It was provided by God. It was supernatural for this specific reason. But, but, but history and other things will speculate and say something different. We don't fully know what this star was, but we know that this star, this light, led them to the place where Jesus was. And so it says they went in, and when they saw Mary, they bowed down and worshipped the king. And it says they offered them what? Three gifts. What were the three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When we think about these, there's significance to these items. Now, there's, there's, there's two different ways you can view this, but I, I don't think either one contradict each other. The first is this. Gold represents Christ's kingship. Gold is very kingly. Frankincense would have represented and worshipped his deity. Frankincense was a sign of worship. When you look at the Old Testament, they use a lot of frankincense in their aromas. It was related to worship or service of God in the Old Testament. And myrrh represented his humanity. It represented death and mourning. And so Jesus was not only offered myrrh in the cradle, but he was offered myrrh on the cross in the wine. And myrrh would have been used to embalm or, or cover Jesus. It was used at a time of death. Was it prophetic? Did the wise men, did God somehow lead the wise men to be very prophetic in their gifts? That Jesus is king. Jesus is God and he's called to be worshipped. And Jesus will die for our sins. But we can also look at it in another way, in a very practical, down-to-earth way, is that here you have Mary and Joseph, who by far really didn't financially have much money. And many people would say that, that Mary and Joseph actually used the gold to not only to, to pay for the inn, to pay where they were staying, but to also help them in their travels, because they had to flee. And so God would have, would have provided financially for them in gold. The frankincense would have been used to, to potentially perfume the area. Maybe they would have used it to worship God himself. And the myrrh would have been possibly used also as an ointment for the new baby. Because we got to realize there are a lot of crazy things that happen to newborn babies. And Jesus was human just like any of us. But the reality is this, that ultimately the wise men who pursued this newborn king encountered evil, an evil heart at King Herod, and yet still went forward and worshipped a king and offered incredible gifts to this King Jesus. And that is exactly what the whole Advent season is about. 
It's about pursuing Christ who has come. And we are to worship him. And so how does this, Mike, Pastor, how does this connect the sanctification? How can we take this passage where we have these, this real story, these real men from the East, which, by the way, can we talk about the song, The First Noel, when it talked about how the star rose in the East when they had to go West? Or can we talk about We Three Kings? Great Great Christmas hymn, but we have no idea fully how many there actually were. But here's how it applies. Sanctification, we have to understand, is not regeneration. We got to understand that when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he has changed us. He's regenerated us. We have become new. We are new creatures in Christ. Christ has freed us from the grasp the bondage of sin. Sin no longer has that power over us. We're not bound to sin anymore. But here's the thing. The ever effects of sin is still running rampant in us. When we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, when Christ died on the cross, he didn't kill the enemy. He didn't stop sin. So what? are we to do here? Listen to what A.B. Simpson has to say concerning uh, the idea of sanctification. The sanctified Christian is separated from sin, from an evil world, even from her own self, and from anything that we separate in cause between her and Christ in new life. Regeneration happens at the point of conversion. We become new creations in Christ. When we accept Christ, here's the thing, we are still like King Herod. Our hearts aren't fully surrendered over to Christ as king. We still have in our flesh, in our minds, and even in our hunger and desires, we're still bent towards sin. How many of you, when you remember, when you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then maybe a day or two later, you fell into sin and you struggled going, am I really saved? I can't tell you how many new believers I come to who are like, man, I accepted Jesus, but yet I still have these cravings. I still have this longing. I still have these things going on. I'm still wanting to do this sin over here that you say Christ freed me from. What's going on? Remember when I said, when we buy a house, Christ has purchased us, right? Purchased us from Christ, but there's still a process, still something inside that needs to change in order to make it a home. So we still have the, this desire like King Herod to control the throne of our hearts, to control our own souls. And the sanctifying process is about releasing all of that to Christ and allowing him more and more and more part to that throne. At the core of sin is still the King Herod motives. We're always still about us. Even Paul says, I still struggle. We're offended when someone else claims to be king. That is our flesh. We still want to be the rulers of our own hearts. But salvation is the first steps in surrendering ourselves and accepting Jesus as king. A.B. Simpson said, 
the founder of the alliance, at the point of salvation, our hearts have not yet gained entire victory over the old elements of sin. And so what is, sancti- what is sanctification? What is the process? Well, at the root of it, sanctification is separation from sin. We are still being separated from the power of sin in our lives. We're still being separated from the ramifications of sin in our lives. This is a lifelong process that's going to happen throughout your life. And ultimately, we won't see full holiness until God brings us home. Well, God doesn't promise that at the point of salvation, sin will be destroyed. He does promise that there will be a deep chasm between the Christian and sin in our lives. Sanctification is the process of Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit fleeing sin and never returning. And so when we accept Christ and we've come, we've claimed Jesus as Lord, we say we're going to worship him, yet we still have struggles in our own lives. And so what is our calling? What are we to do as we still have these struggles, but yet we want to worship king? Well, we are to pursue Christ in everything that we do. Just like the wise men, they left King Herod. And what did they do when they went to the house? They bowed down and worshiped who? Jesus. The sanctifying process is all about us pursuing Christ and going deeper into Christ and worshiping more and more. And as we do that and as we pursue Christ, our hearts are going to begin to be transformed to love Christ more, and to love sin less. Sanctification is all about worship and being dedicated to the God like the wise men were to Jesus. A sanctified Christian is completely yielded to God to please him in every particular. His first thought always is, thy will be done. His one desire is that he may please God and do his holy will. Simpson. And so as we pursue Christ, what we're doing is we're submitting to the lordship of Christ. We're continually laying down ourselves, like Romans 12:1 says, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. We are to continually surrender and worship over to Christ. And as we do that, and the more we say, Thy will be done and not mine, the more we will become like. Jesus. Because here's the thing. When sin came into the world, it, it, it tarnished the image of God in us. And Christ's whole desire is to reform and return that image back into the likeness of God. And so a sanctified Christian would be completely submitted to the authority and lordship of Christ. Which the more we progress and the more we press forward, and the more that we pursue the things of Jesus, the less we are going to want sin, and the more we're going to want Christ. But just like, here's the thing we need to understand. Just like not only did the wise men offer and worship, fall down and worship Jesus, they offered gifts. Here's the one thing we need to understand about the sanctified life, is that as Christians, we have to accept the gift of sanctification in our lives. Just like the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, it is a gift of God. Sanctification is a gift of God. 
How incredible is it to know that our God continually gives us gifts? He continually shows his love, displays his love, not only of giving himself, but giving salvation and giving the spirit, but he gives us the sanctifying process with the promise that one day when God returns and he fully glorifies us, we are going to be made complete and holy again. We are sanctified by grace. But not only that, but Jesus himself gave himself as a gift for us. Listen to John 17. I do not ask, Father, you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we're sanctified by the truth of God. As you sent me into the world, so I'm, I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus himself says, Lord, I sanctify, I consecrate, I set myself apart so that they may be sanctified in you. Jesus himself gave himself not only for our salvation, but gave himself as an offering of sanctification for us. So here we need to understand that we've come, as we come to the place of confessing, we need to come to also to the place of confessing our need to be sanctified and recognize that we and all of ourselves cannot do what the Holy Spirit can do. We, we, we have this mentality sometimes of going, I've accepted Jesus and I'm trying to live a life that Jesus is saying I need to live. I'm trying to live the life. I'm trying to refrain from these addictions. I'm trying to refrain from looking at things on the internet I shouldn't be doing. I'm trying to refrain from, from buying things I shouldn't buy. I'm trying to refrain from all these things. We have to understand that in and of ourselves, we cannot run away from sin. If we think that we can run away from sin in and of ourselves, we will continually give in to the temptation of sin in our lives. We have to understand that it is the Holy Spirit's job. And so what is our role in this? Our role isn't trying to flee sin. Our role is to offer ourselves to God and say, God, sanctify me. Free me from the sin. Free me from these addictions. We call this in the Alliance crisis, a crisis moment of realizing I need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome these sins in my life. The more that we try on, of ourselves, the more we're going to continue to fail. And the more that we continue to fail is when we experience shame and guilt in our life that the enemy wants you to face. The enemy wants you to feel shame. Hey, look what you did. Oh, you're not a real Christian, are you? You fell into the sin and you tried your hardest, but yet you still fell. But God is saying, look, listen, my child, let me do this in you. You cannot in and of yourselves do this. I need you to accept me, accept my gift, accept the power of the Holy Spirit. Surrender all of that to me. So the wise men, they offered gifts to Jesus Christ like we are to offer ourselves to the Lord. And we're to receive gifts like Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph accepted those gifts. They didn't turn them down. 
And so for us, not only are we to offer ourselves to God, we are to accept what he desires to give us. And that is the gift of sanctification in our lives. And finally, so we have this, this, this story, right? When we accept Jesus and we've come to worship him, we say, Lord, be the savior of my life. I want to worship you. I want you to be king of my life. There is still a process, right? We still have a heart like King Herod. Our flesh is still raising raging on inside of us. Even Paul says, look, I do what I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do. Why? Because of this battle that keeps happening. And we are to continually pursue the things of the Spirit in our lives. And so what is our response to an evil heart? Worshiping Jesus. Because it's only when we worship Jesus can our hearts continually be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so we accept that gift of sanctification. We worship Jesus. We, we desire to go deeper and deeper. We desire to abide in Christ like John 15 says. And so what else are we to do? Look at what it says at the end of uh, verse, uh, look at what it says in verse 12. And warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What is the sanctified life? It's not returning to a place of sin. It's not returning to the heart of King Herod. It's not returning to, to what God has actually freed you from. Romans 6 says, flee it. You've been freed. Go the opposite direction. So in the Christian life, the more that we pursue Jesus, the more that we're running away from sin. We're not returning to it. So a sanctified life is being set apart from sin. And we can't, if we're set apart from sin, we can't go back to sin and go, oh, look at that. It's kind of like, have you ever seen a picture of a kid, there's something dead on the road, and you're just going there kind of poking it? What is it going to do? Right? We're not to poke sin. We're not to poke. Why? Because the enemy is still raging. Scripture says that the enemy is raging like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may devour. And the more that we're open to even going back and trying to check out sin, what are you going to do? That's when the enemy is going to get you. We are to pursue and run away and not poke sin. And so just like the wise men warned, hey, don't go back to King Herod. As believers in our lives, we're called to pursue the cross. We're called to pursue Jesus. We're called to pursue life. Jesus has come. We are to continue to follow him in our lives. And the more that we go deeper into that, we're going to find that it's easier to not look back. It's easier because the more and more that we pursue Christ, the more and more that we're allowing him more part of that throne. Jesus is the desire in the throne of your hearts. But our flesh is still going to fight that. The more that we surrender and submit to his lordship and kingship and and incredible nature of who he is, which is love. The more that we submit to his love, the more that we are going to fall more in love with him. That's why the greatest commandment is to love God first and foremost above everything with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why? Because God wants to continually <laughs> sanctify all of that. He wants to redeem what sin has broken. And he wants you to pursue him. Listen. <clears throat> Look what Bruce Tripstra in Three Passions of the Soul said. 
The road to freedom has already been made for us. Discipleship is the process of living in that freedom. As we grow in discipleship, we will experience greater freedom to love like Christ. We are sanctified by the grace of God through the work of of Christ on the cross. God is sanctifying us by his spirit daily. Soul discipleship, when understood, will help the process because it reveals the deformation of our soul and the gospel can be applied. The more that the gospel is applied to our souls, to our core motives that drive us, the more that we become like Christ. We have to understand that our souls are sick and needing not only of a savior, but of a sanctifier. It has been corrupted, but there is hope. Sin is not our destiny because Christ has freed us and is transforming us the more that we pursue him in our lives. And so Christ didn't just come to save us. He came to continually set us apart for his glory, for a future kingdom with him reigning fully 